It's generally agreed, even in the more literary review pages of the world, that I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes was the most exciting thriller of 2014. It sold in the millions and was translated into 30 languages. It had been a while since a book in this genre had appeared with the cachet of The Day of the Jackal or The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. Janet Maslin in the New York Times summed it up thus. Neither its plot nor its provenance do much to recommend Terry Hayes's I Am Pilgrim, so it's all the more surprising that this first novel turns out to be the most exciting desert island read of the season. It was about a duel between an intelligence agent called Pilgrim trying to protect the United States and his antagonist Saracen trying to destroy parts of it using a vaccine-resistant strain of a nasty virus. So, a long time between books, but now there is the Year of the Locust. It's not a follow-up. Battling wits this time are a veteran denied area access spy for the CIA whose typical missions involve being sent to the most dangerous places on the globe. And a very clever adversary, as you'd expect, with a locust tattooed on his back, whose mission involves destruction on a much larger scale than in the last book, and of course with a whole new modus operandi. And someone can win a copy of The Year of the Locust before we go today. Terry Hayes was born in England and migrated to Australia as a child. He trained as a journalist on the Sydney Morning Herald, migrated professionally to Current Affairs Radio, then wrote or co-wrote the screenplays for Road Warrior Mad Max 2, Dead Calm, the film which launched Nicole Kidman's international movie career, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and a large number of TV movies and miniseries involving stars like Mel Gibson, Jodie Foster and Johnny Depp. He's received more than a dozen industry awards, including two enemies. He wrote the Bodyline series, if you followed that. Terry and his wife, Kristen, have four children and now live in Portugal. Terry, lovely to talk to you. Thanks for being able to join us. Lovely talking to you and thanks for having me, Jim. And congratulations on the new book, which we'll get to. You've lived in so many places. You're in Portugal now, but you were in Queenstown for a while with us, weren't you? Yes, yes. Um, we, um, We... had a house over there on about 30 acres and you looked one way and uh, you looked at, uh, you know, well, either way you looked, you could see the ski slopes. So it was just outside of Arrowtown, actually. And uh, I think the most wonderful place myself and the family have ever lived. Uh, the kids skied. They had a real Huckleberry Finn life, you know, wandering around the acreage, uh, the you know there was a stream running through it i offered them they, they were quite young i i offered them i think a uh, hundred new zealand dollars for the first one to catch a rabbit <laughs> and uh that occupied them for weeks um <laughs> they never did catch one they loved all of that the people are amongst the nicest people i've ever met in the world i was driving from queenstown back to the house one day and um they i got flat tire. And uh, being a writer, <laughs> fixing flat tyres is not exactly in my repertoire, you know. So I get out of the car and I have a look at this and I think, oh, well, that's, you know, that's totally screwed. So what do I do now? Now, I've got to try to get the jack out and I've got to make sure it's level, otherwise I'm going to you know, kill myself. <laughs> and then, well, four or five people stop. 
they, they stopped. Within the space of about half an hour, four or five people stopped. They offered to help or to change the tyre for me. I can't say help me because that would have been useless. Uh, one couple offered to take me home and give me a cup of tea. A couple of people offered to actually drive me home and and do that. Um, and I, I said to one of them, I said, look, this is so different to getting a flat tyre in America. For a start, you haven't got a gun. And second, I'm not being robbed. Uh, and that, so it, it was. It really encapsulated for me that something about New Zealand society and a sense of community that's been lost in, in in most of the rest of the world. Yes, I have a great affection for New Zealand, and uh, unlike the Australian cricket team, they don't cheat. So we now that's support right. the New Zealand cricket team, except when Australia's playing England, when, of course, we have to boo England. But, uh, yeah, so it, it was a great experience. I'm glad I asked you that. It sounds like a great experience, and that's gratifying to hear. On to, on to your professional life. MGM, I've got to ask you about this. We're talking about a franchise with I Am Pilgrim, you know, to rival Bond and Bourne and Mission Impossible. What has happened to the movie, the I Am Pilgrim movie or series of movies or whatever? Well, they're still talking about it, Jim, because this <laughs> is Hollywood. Why would you make a decision when you can continue to talk? Because then nobody loses their job. As long as you don't make a decision, you don't lose your job, you know. Um, so, yes, nine years have passed. The, um, I had MGM asked me a month or two ago to have a conversation with a very major movie star, whose name I can't mention, just out of decency. Um, but, yeah, take my word for it, a major movie star. And uh, with a view, he wants to play Pilgrim. The problem that MGM has at the moment is that when they buy the rights from you, um, it's not forever. There's a time frame in which they have to make the film. Well, that time frame is coming close to to expiration. In the intervening years, it's been taken over by Amazon. Um, and it, the book was not... You know, it had barely been published. Nobody knew what that book would do. Well, we've had nine years of experience of it becoming, a, you know, thankfully, a, a very large international bestseller. So I have a an idea of what that book is worth, and uh, it doesn't accord with their idea <laughs> at the moment. So <laughs> we shall see what will happen. But it will be made, because if MGM doesn't make it, um, the rights will come back to me. And I, I've had an interest from four very, very serious filmmakers who want to direct it or produce it or direct and produce. So it will be made. It's just, you know, the classic Hollywood story, you know, everything takes forever. Yeah, I'm sure it will be made. Uh, the Year of the Locust isn't a follow-up to I Am Pilgrim, but there is one on the way, isn't there? There is a follow-up. Yes, yes, I've been contracted to write Pilgrim too. I mean, what happened, Jim, was that uh, I wrote Pilgrim and uh, I had no idea, you know, because you're lost in 600 pages, you know, 250,000 words or whatever it was. And, you know, you lose all perspective. And there'd be nights I'd go to bed, I, you know, I'd, I'd do some work and I'd go to bed and i think, you know, Terry, you're a very lucky 
guy, you really are a genius and um, an unrecognised genius, I might say. But mostly I went to bed <laughs> saying to myself, you are a complete moron. Why did you ever start this? It'll never be finished. You don't have the, the talent, the skill, the intelligence or anything else to do it. And funnily enough, there's many people on Amazon who write reviews of the book who agree with that view absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I had no idea you know, what would happen with the book. So I thought, well, the worst thing I can do is to write a sequel because if the first one fails, nobody's going to read a sequel. So I thought, well, I'll go and do a different story with different characters set in a world which I find interesting, which is the spy world. And so that became the year of the locust. Well, meantime, Pilgrim became, you know, this very big selling book. So now I've got to go back and and do Pilgrim 2, which means I have to read Pilgrim 1, which I've never done, not not since the day it was published. Really? I, I've never I'm gearing myself up for that. I, I, yeah, I'm on the exercise bike. I'm getting fit for the battle ahead. You know. Well, we get a sense of your struggle when we read about you. The reason why people loved I Am Pilgrim, well, it's never just one reason, but a major one is that the plot was realised so well, and it was ingenious and it was complicated, and even the very well-known writers end up having weak plots with non-sequiturs in them, especially these days with publishing pressure. And I know you're a perfectionist. You would send pages of The Year of the Locust to the publisher and then withdraw them, wouldn't you, for rewrites? You're a perfectionist. Yeah, yeah. The published book is around 250,000 words, uh, roughly speaking. It might be 245. I can't remember. But it's 250. But down the bottom of my document, it says 1,070,000 words. <laughs> That's what I wrote. I I I threw out 750,000 words, oh. which is a lot of words. A lot of research. I have enormous respect for the readers. I have enormous respect for writing. And I had the financial resources and the indulgence of the publisher and the support of my my, my family to write the book that I wanted to write. And you're quite right that a lot of novels really fall down with poor plotting or or things that basically make no sense. I had the time to, to fix those things or to address them. The money you make's forgotten long, long before the book is forgotten. Mm. I just wanted to do a good book, so I did the best I could, and it took longer than I anticipated. There's no doubt of that. And didn't publishing executives fly out to Australia at the time and try and giddy you up? Oh, yeah, they flew everywhere. They followed me around the world. That's why I had to keep moving. So, yeah, they came and talked to me and I smiled and nodded my head and said, well, yes, I'll go as fast as I possibly can. <laughs> Terry Hayes is talking to us. The Year of the Locust is his new blockbuster. We're just about to get to aspects of that. Before I do, your family had been 10-pound poms coming into Australia. Uh, reading about you, you seem to have been a gifted but lonely child. Are books, fr Terry, are books friends when you write them? Are books company as well? Uh, not when you write them. No, no, they're your enemy. 
<laughs> you're wrestling you're wrestling it to the ground you know I often think the characters oh, I've got four kids you know um the, the characters are like your kids you know when you start out with them they do what they're told but your characters also become teenagers they start to rebel they start to think that they know best and I'm sitting there thinking no 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 the next chapter, you have to go and do such and such. And then I think to myself, yeah, but this character wouldn't do it. Or how do I motivate this? Exactly like your kids, you know. Then they grow up into being young adults and they go off and have their own life and I do what I'm told. And you end up not telling them what to do. You end up going along for the ride. And that. so I can't say they're friends, other books that I read, I mean, written by other people, are my very dearest friends. Yeah, and I like great friendships. I return to them time and again. I, you know, I think there's nothing more enjoyable than than rereading a book and it delighting you and exciting you and and taking you on that journey exactly the same as the first time you read it. My own books, no. I don't want to read them again, you know. No, I like the movies. I hate it when the movies come on TV. The kids all yell out, say, hey, Dad, come and look at this. And I think, no, thank you. No, been there, done that. Uh, I I don't want to watch it again. That's so interesting. I'm going to scoot over aspects of your life because, as I keep saying, I want to get to the book. But when you were with the Sydney Morning Herald, you ended up in New York. Research is crucial to believability with what you write. I know you were a top investigative reporter. You tracked down the criminal financiers Alexander and Thomas Barton. That was a famous case once. They'd fled uh, Australia for Paraguay. You tracked them down. How do you... Obvious question, and you must get asked a lot about this. How do you obtain... Even with your research skills, how do you obtain knowledge of organisations like the CIA and jihadist Middle East movements and so on? If you're empathetic to people, even if they've done some pretty terrible things, they will open up to you. They will talk to you and and that. And and I think that's a skill that is not a a great play in journalism anymore. There's a much more sense of gotcha, you know, that they're going to trap you. And that, and I, I'm not sure that's the best way to go. Um, I mean, the guys that interrogate uh, jihadi warriors, you know, the very top echelon of, of terrorism, they know that torture doesn't work, threats doesn't don't work. What does work is building a relationship. So that was, to my mind, I just came upon this intuitively when I was working as a journalist. But the internet's changed everything. That the it really has. If you know how to use the internet and you know how to research, then and go dive really deep, you know, uh, down into things. It's amazing what people will write about or the posts that they will put up about their own experiences with some knowledge from journalism of the way that. Um, the way that spy agencies work, that had always been an interest of mine. Putting that together with the interviews that I did when I was a journalist, especially in America, my sort of sense of how they work, and you can't trust most of what they tell you, 
putting that together with what is available on the internet, I've, I've built up a sort of a picture of how it works. And uh, now I can't say it. I mean, most intelligence work is extraordinarily boring, but I don't deal with those people. I deal with the very brave people who cross borders or who or who really do hunt, you know, pe- very bad actors that, that, that hunt them down. So, yeah, most intelligence work is looking at, you know, the shipping news and trying to work <laughs> out what car goes on what ship. But I don't deal with that, thank goodness. And the great thing about the CIA, all intelligence agencies, is no matter what you say about them, they're going to deny it. And then, of course, the readership says, oh, well, that must be true. They take the trouble of denying it. So so you're on a, you're on a bet to nothing with them. You know, if they shut up uh, and don't say anything, that's great. If they deny it, that's even better. So, It's <laughs> funny. Do you think about your choice of bad actors? I mean, in movies and books, it's often been Russians. There was a f- phase when they were South African, you know, all sorts of locations. For these books, it's been uh, fatalist uh, fatalistic Islamist movements and I know you're careful to add motivation to your antagonists and we meet many sympathetically drawn Muslim people lovely people in the pages but I imagine that's a tightrope to walk yeah nobody sits around you know in uh, you know in Afghanistan uh, and it has a cup of coffee and thinks well I think tomorrow I'll go and unleash smallpox on the world. Uh, I mean, people just don't act like that. So, you know, that your first port of call is to say, why? Why would somebody risk everything and and go and take this action? Well, you'll always find something in their background that has traumatised or affected them very deeply. I mean, what we see happening in Gaza at the moment <clears throat> Putting aside the rights and wrongs of it all, I can guarantee you one thing. Any Palestinian that's surviving what is going on in in Gaza is thinking right now about revenge and striking back and somebody will organise those people into what they will call freedom fighters and what certain other people, you know, including Australia, will call terrorists. So it's always a very complex field, but you have to do justice to your characters. You have to say, well, they're not madmen. And we have this vision in the West of guys sitting in caves in Iran or Afghanistan or Pakistan with an AK-47 reading the Quran and then going out and willy-nilly killing people. It's not like that at all. They're a lot more intelligent than we give them credit for. They use the resources that are available, which are very limited. They don't have helicopter gunships and aircraft carriers. And so when there is injustice or people perceive a terrible injustice, they tend to want to strike back. And that's the the knot that we have to unravel. The whole world has to unravel. And uh, so I try to deal with characters who who are well motivated. What they do is beyond the pale. 
but I have to look at how they got to that place. Steven Spielberg says that in, in good movies, in good stories, there are n- no bad people. There are just people with bad motivations, you know. You're right. It's a tightrope. It's a tightrope. It's interesting um, analysis of it from you, though. You excel with action scenes. With someone like Lee Child, for example, um, he's good because he learned how to fight when he was young. Why are you good with act- so good with action scenes? Can you tell? Is there a, a well, reason? Well, you know, I, I did... I did Mad Max 2, wrote the screenplay for Mad Max 2, which Spielberg reckons is, you know, the equal of the chase in in uh, in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And maybe he's right, I don't know. It is a very, very good chase, brilliantly directed by, by George Miller. But, you know, not many people know that when I... When I was writing that chase with George. I didn't have a driving license. So, <laughs> so, so things crashing was not exactly, you know, unexpected for somebody who, who couldn't change gear in, in a car, you know. Um, no, George taught me a very, very interesting thing about about action sequences and and I think it's very very true and that is this they work to a comedic rhythm really great comedies have a joke then somebody tops the joke and then you have to look for what's called topping the topper they work on a rhythm of one two three one two three that's when you get that sort of great moment in a movie where the whole audience roars with laughter. So in action sequences, what a lot of people do is they think that the first action beat is all you need. It's not. That's just the start. You've got to try to get that one, two, three. And if you repeat what you've done before, it's not twice as good. It's half as good. So it has to be constantly inventive. And I learned that, you know, from a, a master filmmaker. And you learn it when you, because I was making movies in Australia, you sit in the editing room. It, it's not, it, it's much more collegial in Australia. So, or in New Zealand, any small country, it's all hands to the pumps. So you sit in the editing room and you live with all of your mistakes. You can't escape them. They're there. And you're trying to make it work in the editing. You learn a lot. And that was the most important lesson. And I've tried to implement that in all the action sequences that I've done in in both books. Gee, all the shoulders, all the people you've rubbed shoulders with, it's fascinating. You've bought every album released by the singer Keith Urban. How come? Yeah. Oh, because when when Pilgrim was cut, uh, was about to be released, because I was as nervous as all get out, and um, you know, think you know, veering as I mentioned before between elation and deep depression, <laughs> the uh, you know, the whole world's going to read it. Then thinking if we sell two copies, I'll be pleased, and that. So I contacted Nicole Kidman, um, you know, who I'd made some movies with, and I count as a close friend. So I contacted Nicole and I said to her, hey, listen, Nick, 
you've got this huge social media following and I have never been on Facebook or Twitter or anything else. I have no social media at all. I hope I never will. I said, but you've got this social media following. Would you mind just mentioning that this is a great book (laughs) and helping me out here? And she said, well, Terry, of course I will. I said, and in return, I will buy every thing ever made by Keith Urban. <laughs> and she said, well, that's a deal. That's a deal. We, nothing could be fairer than that. And so she duly went and uh, made a number of posts of, about I Am Pilgrim. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I, of course, uh, it was a wonderful act of friendship. And uh, then, you know, a, a short time later, Hillary Clinton was photographed with the book. So that was good news. And then Monica Lewinsky said it was her favourite novel. She went on social media and said that. And I really, really hope one day I'm passing through an airport, I see Monica Lewinsky because I am going to thank her from the bottom of my heart because she's almost like an unpaid publicist for the book. She loves it. So, yeah, so so, but Nick kicked it all off and uh, God bless her for doing it. After that movie Dead Calm... Uh, I think came a taste of the high life for you. There was a move to LA, talking to people like Brad Pitt at parties. You were out driving with Tom Cruise. Uh, And is he a bit crazy behind the wheel in real life too? Um, That's hard to say. He drives very fast. If you have confidence in somebody behind the wheel, it becomes a thrilling experience. I'm nowhere near as fast a driver as as Tom, but I can guarantee you it terrifies nearly everybody in the car because I have absolutely no skill <laughs> in that. So um, he uh, he's a very, very good driver. He's worked with the stuntman. He's worked with, with, you know, really ace drivers, and they've taught him a lot. And he, he's had the luxury, I should imagine, uh, of being able to practice and that so yeah it was a pretty good uh experience um i can't say there were moments when i wasn't there my god we seem to be coming into this corner pretty quick uh and that but no no he 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 is and and i will say i mean he and nicole of course are divorced and that but he is a very charming and a very generous person uh, uh, and that. So, yes, I went through that sort of experience with him. Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah, we certainly get a sense from him of the ceaseless uh, charm, absolutely. Uh, I want to just quickly ask you about leaving California because I I don't think, you know, Hotel California was kind of the life, even though you were well-placed, it wasn't really where you wanted to be, was it? No, no sensibilities are very different um so you know i've been to los angeles many 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 times before i moved there uh and you know i you know hollywood's a bit like the olympics if you want to work in the movies so you work out a way of work of working there which i did but um my my wife and i were invited to a party and um you park your car and that in itself is a bit of a challenge because, you know, the valets take your car and then everybody's looking at you getting out of your car and giving the keys to the valet parker and you 
you know, you don't want to be there in a 1959 FJ Holden. We went to the gates and the, the camels were waiting. This was a house uh, up a very, very long driveway. And um, that. so the camels were waiting because the theme of the party was a bed and a night, you know, a Bedouin night. A beautiful Moroccan tent set up in in the grounds of, of the of the estate, and beautiful food, and all the great and famous were there. We were just standing there waiting for the camel herder, whoever he was, to get everybody in line. But on, on the camel in front of us was Jim Carey, at the very height of his fame. And um, anyway, it was one of the greatest performances I've ever seen. And he is a very good dramatic actor, leaving, leaving aside all the, you know, the comedies. He's a very, very good actor. And that, so he's sitting on his camel, which is like ours, not moving at all. But he suddenly starts to become Lawrence of Arabia. He's tossing his head back as if the wind is howling out of the Nefu desert. He's making out that he's whipping this camel faster and faster because water must be close and they're going to die. And you could almost imagine, the, the, you know, the sun beating down and the, and the terrible parched lips and that. And he's tossing his head around and putting his arms up in the air as if he's riding furiously across the desert. Well, then the camel herder came and we all set off at, at a walk, but it was one of the great performances. <laughs> so we go up to the Bedouin tents. We have a wonderful night, it really was. <clears throat> and we were walking back down the driveway. I think camels had gone off to pasture. And my wife said to me, she was born in or grew up, in, I met her in Los Angeles. She's American, and uh, she, I met her at Paramount. So she knows about the movie business. And she said, well, what did you think of that? I said, I think it was just fantastic. She said, yeah, go on. And I said, but it's not me. Mm. I said, I don't, I don't belong here. And she said, no, it's interesting you say that. She said, it gets a bit extreme, doesn't it? And I said, yeah. She said, what do you think, what's going to happen? I said, I think we should move to New York. So we did. And she was there for, so we, without name dropping here, but we rented a house. A guy called Tommy Matola had married Mariah Carey. He was the head of Sony Music and he married Mariah Carey and they had this magnificent townhouse on the Upper East Side, which she wouldn't live in because he'd been there with a, in a previous relationship. So he wanted to rent the house. <clears throat> so anyway, one way or another, I, we went and had a look at the house. And so we rented it from him. Uh, fantastic house, really fantastic. Six stories, it, its own elevator. The movies were doing well. We were there three days and my wife said to me, I hate New York. I hate New York. <laughs> She said, the people are so rude. You can't get your trolley down the aisles in the supermarkets. She said, I'm sick of the traffic. I said, well, you've only been here three days. She said, yeah, that's three days too long. <laughs> so we stayed there for a year and then we moved again. But Los Angeles receded into the background, you know, into the past. What a life. What a fantastic, peripatetic life, packed with names we all know. Uh 
The year of the locust. I better start mentioning this. Uh, it, CIA agent Ridley Kane makes his way through the badlands where Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan meet. Then he sneaks into Iran to try and find out what dastardly deed is being planned by a Muslim Brotherhood. We're on tenterhooks, and then. Uh, in a gigantic plot twist that we simply cannot reveal, you fiddle with time and in a way you switch genres. It is um, such a remarkable uh, change of direction in a book. Why did you do it? Well, you know, the spy genre is a pretty dusty genre. You know, uh, there's there's practitioners who are very, very good. You know, John le Carre comes to mind. Uh, you know, Freddie Forsyth, Day of the Jackal, uh, and that the Born, the first Born book. So there's some very good practitioners. But you know what the how these things normally work? You set up the bad guy, the good guy goes and chases him. So I thought, well, <clears throat> we could give this a shot. And then I thought, character wise, we've got a guy who who's got a science degree from Annapolis. He, he's qualified in submarines. He, he's, you know, he, he, he could skipper a nuclear-powered submarine. So I thought it'd be interesting to have somebody like that who believes in the world of, you know, scientific theory, measures things by number and weight. He's, you know, he's very accomplished, very fact-based. I thought, well, that'd be interesting if we start to expose him to some more metaphysical things. So he's wandering around there in, in Iran, <laughs> you know, having a tough tough time of it. But he's, as you mentioned, he goes to meet somebody who can give him information and he has to go through a canyon in order to keep the rendezvous. He's about to go through the canyon and he stops and there's something that says to him, don't go, don't go. And he listens. And the only way he can describe it is that he hears gunfire from the future. That's gunfire aimed at him. It hasn't happened yet. And he doesn't know whether there's been, you know, it's his intuition. Is it his tradecraft? Is it all of his experience coming together and saying that would be a perfect place for an ambush? Or is it sort of like, small rip in the fabric of time has he got a premonition of something so he faces a crisis does he go forward and say hey listen i'm a scientist this is just rubbish i'm tired i'm anxious so you know i'm sleep deprived or does he say no i'm going to listen to some inner voice that i've never heard before but it's me telling myself be careful well, one of the horses, he's got a team of pack horses. One of the horses figures there's something wrong in that canyon as well. So he goes the long way, avoids the canyon. A couple of days later, he finds out through a different set of circumstances, yeah, they were waiting for him. He was a dead man. The moment he stepped into that canyon, he was a dead man. Well, that starts to affect his view of the world. Much later on in the book, he sees visions of a city in ruins of uh, 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 New York. I don't think I'm giving away too much here. It's absolutely been devastated. And he's telling his wife, who's a medical doctor, about this and how terrible it is. And she's trying to get more information out of him. 
And he finally says to her, yeah, I, this is what I see, what I envisage, and there's death all around me. I see nothing but death. And she looks at him and given his job and that, she says, yours. You see your death. And he says, no, not at all. I see yours. And I think it's a, one of the better moments in the book. And he has no explanation for these things. But, of course, being a storyteller, I have to get that to work. And, yeah, he does see the ruins of a huge city. He does see her die. And uh, you'll have to read the book to find out what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and the intriguing death mechanism, uh, it's probably not a nice phrase to use, uh, and I'm not quite giving the plot away here either, but do you really think the current race to the moon is about off-Earth minerals? Just to Yes, you do. yes. Yeah, look, four weeks after I handed in the final manuscript, NASA announced that it just bought all samples back from the asteroid belt, and it landed back on Earth with these ore samples because rare earth minerals are the are most valuable things on the planet at the moment, really, in every computer, in stealth jets, in, in passenger planes, on and on and on. And 90% of the world, over 90% of the world's rare earth minerals are controlled by China. Anybody that can get to the, because there are rare earth minerals on on the moon, uh, like walking around, you know, the Klondike or or Ballarat and picking up gold, you know. I mean, they just it, it's easily mined if you can get to the moon and do it. The asteroid belt is even richer, so that's what SpaceX, that's what you know, Elon Musk and and all of these people that are investing in rocketry and sending you know probes up that's what it's really about this is not you know star trek you know what a great adventure it is for the human race to go out and to go where no other man's gone or human beings gone that would be nice but it's not about that anymore because nearly every great advance has been driven by greed, and there's enormous risks associated with that. Enormous risks. You know, we could end up. You know, when the cavalry were going across the the Great Plains of America, you know, the story is some people say it's not true, but it's nevertheless an interesting story that they gave the Indians blankets infected with smallpox. Well. The Indians had no chance. They'd never been exposed to anything like that. But, you know, the common cold killed enormous numbers of people in South America because that, they had no immunity to it. <laughs> Wait until somebody brings something back from off Earth that we've never seen before. It's going to make COVID look like a walk in the park, you know. So, yes, there, I think that it, it's a reality I think it will happen. I think artificial intelligence will will boost it enormously. And I have no confidence whatsoever in any government imposing protocols that would protect us. So, yeah, it's leading-edge science, but so is Pilgrim. And, you know, Pilgrim dealt with smallpox. We didn't get smallpox, but we sure got COVID, and that was bad enough. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I wrote it from a place of concern, not from a place of imagination.
you've just given the listeners some hints about what the Year of the Locust is to do with. Congratulations on the Year of the Locust. Good luck with the shooting of the movie or movies for I Am Pilgrim. You don't say to another spy good luck or goodbye, actually, do you? You say in your book. No, I'll see you in Auckland. Yeah, that's right, because spies, <laughs> you know. spies don't like to be reminded of the luck needed. All right. No, no, they always say their favourite city in the world. So, you know, maybe I should say Queenstown. So, yes, I hope to catch up with you down in New Zealand, and uh, thank you very much for having me. See you in Queenstown. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Terry. <laughs> Thanks, Jim.